All right. Well, you might agree that Christianity is viewed by so many people as a rule-keeping religion. Uh, many people find that offensive. They think, why would I want to willingly submit myself to a whole bunch of do's and don'ts? Why would I submit to commandments? Because in this day and age, people want to be free. We want to be free to make our own decisions. We want to be free to be the people that we want to be. We want to be our authentic self. And we want to be the people who determine our own destiny. And so the idea of a religion imposing rules and commandments, regulations, ceremonies upon people is really quite offensive. And I don't think, therefore, it's particularly surprising that a great many people in our country have decided they don't want to have anything to do with Christianity because of this perception that it is a rule-keeping religion. And so, therefore, it's seen as oppressive. And when you look at Christians who are supposed to be keeping rules and you see that they don't, it just highlights the hypocrisy. So why would you follow an oppressive, rule-keeping, hypocritical religion? Well, you wouldn't, would you? But is that what Jesus is on about? Is that what the Sermon on the Mount teaches? Indeed, as we have a look at this part of the Bible, very famous words from Jesus. Jesus teaching to his disciples. He's gathering his first followers and he's teaching them about what the kingdom of heaven will be like and what life will be like, what the values of people's lives will be like when they follow Jesus. We're going to see that it's quite different to the reason that so many people have dismissed Christianity. So let's have a look then at these verses, because this really is the linchpin for understanding the rest of the chapter. And indeed, I'd argue that these verses are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible for understanding how the Bible works. So let's have a look at it then. Verse 17. I'm going to work through each of these four verses one at a time. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Now, what's he talking about when he says the law and the prophets? Well, I take it it's shorthand for the Bible. Jesus' Bible was the Hebrew Bible. It's what we know as the Old Testament. And there are a number of ways that you would speak of the Old Testament. Sometimes you sum it up as the law of God. And if you look at Psalm 119, you'll see that almost every verse, and it's the longest chapter in the Bible, has something to say about the word of God, often calls it the law. Otherwise, you might hear it called the law and the prophets, because it's not all law. It's not all the word of Moses. There's a lot that goes on after the giving of the commandments in the life of the people of Israel, and God speaks to his people through the prophets. On other occasions, you'll hear it summarised as the law, the prophets and the writings. And so Jesus, when he's speaking with his followers after he's raised from the dead, teaches them about all that was said about him and the law, the prophets and the writings. All of these are ways of saying the Old Testament as we know it. And notice what Jesus has to say about the Old Testament as we know it. First of all, he didn't come to abolish it. Now, Jesus is going to say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Nathan's going to be bringing us the rest of this chapter next week. 
You've heard this, you've heard this, you've heard this, you've heard this. But I tell you, I tell you, I tell you. And Jesus' authority is going to be recognised and it's going to stand out amongst the religious teachers of his day. But lest we think that Jesus is getting rid of the old and replacing it with something new, he says, I haven't come to get rid of it at all. It still stands. Now, what I've come to do is not to abolish God's word in the Old Testament, but to fulfil them. Now, do any of you watch the... Um, it's a sleepy kind of show, and it's a little bit predictable, but do any of you watch, or have you watched, the show called Death in Paradise? Um, a few of you? Uh, all the oldies? Thank you. Uh, now, can you imagine watching Death in Paradise for the first uh, 48 minutes and turning it off for the last two minutes of the show every week? You would get an exercise in frustration. Because it's one of those kind of whodunit shows where you've got all of these clues as to who committed the murder. You'd never stay on this island because everybody gets murdered. Um, and you've got the one English policeman who somehow or other pulls together all of the threads and when everybody's gathered in the room, he tells us who did it and how it happened. That last two minutes is the key to understanding everything that went before. If you've not watched that show, there's another show that I and Fiona got into called Newsroom. We, we were heavily addicted to watching The West Wing, and so we watched it again, and then we were thinking, what else might this guy have created? And he created Newsroom, so we watched Newsroom, and we were watching it on kind of pay TV. But then our pay TV subscription ran out before the last two episodes. And I never saw the conclusion of the show, and there were so many things that were just hanging for me. I forgot about it until a few years later when I was staying with a friend, and I noticed three sets of DVDs, Newsroom, year one, two, and three, and I said, do you mind if we watch the last two shows? He said, you've never watched them? I said, no, I've watched all the others. He said, you've got to watch these. And he sat down with me, and we watched the last two shows, and it was absolutely amazing. Everything in the first episode that seemed completely random was explained in the final episode. Well, let me take you to the point. If you've read through the Old Testament, if you've worked your way perhaps even from Genesis right through to Malachi, if you've dug into the Psalms, if you've read the Proverbs, if you've looked closely at the prophets, if you understand what God has said in the Old Testament, but you've never thought about Jesus, then you are missing out on the key to understanding what it's all about. Because Jesus is that last piece that makes sense of everything. And so for Jewish people who honour the Scriptures and read their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but never hear about Jesus, have never opened a New Testament, they are fondling and groveling in the dark. They're, they're, they're actually unable to see what it is all about. Jesus is saying he's come to fulfil the law, the prophets. And we've seen him doing that, haven't we? Over the last few chapters of Matthew, he does this to fulfil, to fulfil, to fulfil. So that's the first thing. Jesus completes the Old Testament puzzle. The second thing is that every part of God's word still matters to Jesus. Look at verse 18. For truly I tell you, 
until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is saying, it still stands. Okay? Jesus is in the New Testament, but the Old Testament is still standing. Everything is still in place. Now, that can create a difficulty for us, can't it? Because if, if we open up the Old Testament, it might be saying we shouldn't wear clothing where two different types of thread are woven together. It may tell us that if you're going to cook food uh, and, and meat and have milk, that you need two separate fridges so that you don't get the two mixed up together. It might tell you that you actually need to do something serious about the mould in your house because it will make you ceremonially unclean. Not to mention all of the instructions that are given when you do things that you shouldn't do. Children, disobey your parents, you might get killed for it. You see, as you have a look at the Old Testament, there are so many things we just don't know what to do with. It's just extraordinarily foreign to us. What are we to make of all of that? If Jesus is saying nothing disappears from this, then what are we to do? Are we to put ourselves back under the law of Israel? No. Jesus is the key. First verse, Jesus fulfills what it's all about. Take the example for, for a moment of sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the people worshipped God by taking an unblemished animal and recognising their sin, placing their hands upon the animal, the animal slaughtered and its blood is shed so that people's sins can be forgiven. Does Jesus in the New Testament say, keep doing that? No, he doesn't at all. Jesus says, I've come to fulfil it. And if you go to another book like Hebrews, it tells you that the blood of animals, bulls and goats and lambs or doves and pigeons could never take away sin. It was pointing you to the fulfilment in Jesus. So you see, when you go back and you look at what's said about sacrifices, it's only ever preparing us to understand the one perfect sacrifice. It still stands. You go back and you read the Old Testament, what it says about sacrifices. It's important because otherwise Jesus comes into a vacuum. It's the sacrificial system that prepares us for understanding what Jesus has come to do. But we don't go back and put ourselves under the sacrificial system. Likewise, there are a whole bunch of things that we will only truly understand and know what to do with when we recognise Jesus. In fact, the basic picture that you're going to see again and again through the Sermon on the Mount is don't try and do these things so as to get to Jesus. No, come to Jesus first and then put these things into practice and that will make sense. So Jesus completes the Old Testament puzzle. Every part of God's word matters to Jesus. So therefore, make sure it matters to you. Look at verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, a question for you. Is Jesus talking about the Old Testament when he speaks of these commands? 
Or is Jesus speaking about his words that he's teaching and going to go on teaching? Now, I don't know. I, I don't exactly know. Uh, it could be that he's primarily talking about the Old Testament commands. And if he is, what do we do with it? Well, we recognise that it still stands. But it only stands as fulfilled in Jesus. And if that stands, then how much more as the key to understanding every promise that God has ever made will be the words of Jesus from this point onwards. So it doesn't matter. We are to treat the word of God past as God's word. It's to matter to us. And we're to treat the words of Jesus now into the future as God's word. It should matter to us. In other words, we are to have a very high view of the Word of God. The, the Word of God is not something to be treated like a smorgasbord. You, you know the smorgasbords that you, people bring along and they've got a whole range of different foods. And, and you, if you get in early, if you push to the front of the queue, then you know that um, Aunt Mavis makes the best ever quiche. And so you want to get a slice of that quiche and somebody else makes fantastic meatballs. But you don't actually like that lamb's brain that's uh, cooked and put in the casserole? No, lamb's brain. Do you know, when, when I moved up here, here's a little aside, I went to Lorigan and I went to a cafe and uh, there was a sign out the front of the, at the, at the front of the cafe that said, Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, we have lamb's fry and brains. And I thought, yes, I've come to the country. <laughs> I never went back. <laughs> See, Jesus is calling us to take the word of God seriously. It's to matter to us, not to pick and choose, not to ignore the parts that are difficult. I was talking to somebody on the way in and, and he told me that he's just started reading the book of Numbers and he said, it's hard going, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is. I've just been reading through the book of Numbers and I was so pleased to get to the end of it and get into the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and I said, well, I've actually been listening to it being read to me and it's a little bit easier, therefore. As, and you pick up some of the patterns, having an audio Bible for those long lists of names and so on. But it is difficult, but we are not free to pick and choose. Friends, we are called to have a high view of the Bible. To read it for ourselves and many of you have started a Bible reading plan for this year. Uh, I'm doing that one that's a five day plan so that you get the weekends to catch up. I've actually kept going in the weekends, it's been going well so I'm a few weeks ahead. Uh, that might put me in good stead later if I slow down and so on. Uh, we encourage people in small groups to be opening the scriptures. Every time we come to church we listen to God speak to us in his word. So make sure it matters to you. And then look at Jesus' last comment. This is a cracker. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is laying down a standard. He's saying unless your righteousness is better than the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. How can you do that? Um, who were the Pharisees? 
The Pharisees were people who had spent years studying the scriptures. Um, They're a bit like Jesuit priests, if you like, with their seven years of training. And what Jesus is saying would have seemed extraordinarily difficult to people. How can you possibly have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees? And it would be a little bit like saying to a Roman Catholic, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pope, then you will surely not enter the kingdom of heaven. And therein lies the key. What is it that the Pharisees are doing wrong? How might it be that their righteousness falls short? Well, spoiler alert, I'm going to jump to chapter 23. We won't get there this year, so it won't hurt to read a few verses. Because in in, uh, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gives it to the Pharisees with both barrels. Listen to this. I'm just going to read a few verses. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he says. You give a tenth or a tithe of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You see, to the outside eye, the Pharisees look incredibly righteous. They'd have their herb garden on the windowsill and they'd make sure that they cut off one-tenth of the basil, one-tenth of the thyme, one-tenth of the oregano, one-tenth of the chives, one-tenth of the mint, one-tenth of the parsley, and they would put that aside and they would give that and pat themselves on the back for their righteousness. But when it came to the issues of justice and mercy and righteousness, so long as they looked good, they couldn't care less. You see, there's a righteousness that is hypocritical. It's a righteousness that that Jesus describes so graphically as like the outside of a mausoleum, gleaming white granite, and on the inside, bones and decaying carcasses. You see, if our righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees, it can't just be on the surface. It can't just be putting on a show. It can't be rule-keeping and keeping the letter of the law, but ignoring the spirit of the law. It's got to involve transformation from the inside out. So how can that happen? You might decide as you read through the Sermon on the Mount that you'd like to put a number of these things into practice. 
there's going to be some incredibly challenging, exciting, provocative things that you'll hear Jesus saying. You might think, no, I'm going to really work as hard as I can to love my enemy, to stop lusting, to be generous and not greedy. And you might think that it's a matter of, of grit and determination and I'll turn my life around and things will be better from now on. But you won't succeed. You will fail. How can your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Only if it's a righteousness from the inside out. And you can't change yourself on the inside. But God can. We read two passages from the Old Testament. I commend them to you. They're such important passages for understanding what Jesus is on about. And I just want to recap what Jesus says, uh, sorry, what, what the prophet Ezekiel said that I think is in Jesus' mind as he talks about a deeper, greater, more profound internal righteousness. In verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, it says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's how righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have a heart of stone. Those who come to Jesus and put their trust in Jesus, those who follow Jesus, God places his spirit within them to give them a heart of flesh, to move them from the inside out, to follow the way of Christ, to keep the words of God, to put things into practice, to be transformed. You see, it's not something that you or I achieve by effort. It's something that God does within us by his spirit. And if you have the spirit of God, then you have hope of being transformed. Because only God can do that work. And so I want to ask you today, have you put your trust in Jesus? Because that's the first step. And when you come to put your trust in Jesus, God gives us his spirit to enable us to follow him from the inside out. Well, let me leave you with three thoughts about getting to know Jesus. Three thoughts that reflect on this passage. The first to say is that if you want to get to know Jesus, then read the Old Testament. That's right, the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is leading you to understand the one who is to come. The Old Testament prepares you for the Messiah, for Jesus the Christ. It gives you the categories for understanding. It gives you the promises that God keeps. And if you've never read through the Old Testament or you've found it a bit difficult, a bit intimidating, and, and you don't realise how it all fits together, if you know maybe that there's a few kind of standout lead characters, there, there was Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, um, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua and his coat of many colours and, and I think there are a few prophets and I remember a couple of their names like Elijah and so on but you don't know how it all fits together let me put in a plug for a book that will help you 
It's this book here called God's Big Picture. Who's read this book? Um, keep up two hands if you would recommend this book. Okay, I have no idea who put up their hand first, but there's a few two-handers going on. Uh, if you'd like to know about this book, uh, then ask somebody who's read it. Ask Hilton. I saw Hilton's hands go up. You read this recently, didn't you, mate? And I think you were so encouraged by reading it that you gave it to somebody else. And they've been encouraged by reading it. Yes, this is a book which could transform the way you read the Bible because it just shows us that the whole thing hangs together and it hangs together by pointing to Jesus. So read your Old Testament. Secondly, if you want to get to know Jesus, read the New Testament. Read the Gospels four times as often as you read anything else. Why? Because God thought it was so important that you get to know Jesus that he gave us four accounts of Christ. Uh, I heard the story one time of a young fellow who had just become a Christian and he was given a Bible to read and he went away and he absolutely devoted himself to reading. And when he got back together with the guy that had given him to read, he said, I've actually finished it. I, I read as he said to start it in the New Testament, read from Matthew. He said, the guy's a bit repetitive, isn't he? Kind of tells the story four times. And that stuff at the end, that science fiction stuff, that book called Revelation, didn't know what to do with that. God wants us to see Jesus clearly. Read the Gospels. Give yourself a diet of, of reading the Gospels regularly. Read the letters. Read the book of Revelation. Read the book of Hebrews. Read the book of Acts. Because in these books, we see Jesus more clearly. Getting to know Jesus in the Old Testament, getting to know Jesus in the New Testament, and getting to know Jesus in life. Because reading your Bible, friends, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, is not to be done for the sake of filling your mind, but of changing your heart. God wants us to get into his word so that we might live in relationship with him. And that means taking God's word and applying it to our hearts, our minds and our hands. Let me encourage you to do that. If you want help getting into reading the Bible, please speak to me. I'd love to get you some help to do that. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that you make yourself known to us in Jesus. We thank you that he is the piece of the puzzle that makes sense of everything. And so